Dharma friends. Can you all hear me? I think they got a new sound system. It's working really great. So uh, tonight I'm going to talk to you about what I started talking about this morning, which are, are something the Buddha taught that is will absolutely happen while you are practicing this wonderful satipatthana, this wonderful mindfulness, this wonderful vipassana practice. It happened to him. He said it's going to happen to everybody. And that is hindrances. Hindrances to practice. As we all know, or many of us probably know, it is part of the uh, fourth foundation of mindfulness. Uh, Mental hindrances, for sure, I think, are part of that. And then the seven factors of awakening. But I'll talk about that in a second. So um, I heard from uh, some of my wonderful yogis I was interviewing with today that they liked my um, uh, description of mindfulness as a data collection system for, for intuitive awareness. And I didn't make that up really. That's pretty canonical in the suttas about this other way of knowing. So I want to, or this other uh, knowledge system, I want to read uh, a small verse actually from the Zen tradition, but it's called A Finger Pointing at the Moon. The nun Wu Jin Cheng asked the sixth patriarch Huneng, I have studied the Maha Parinirvana Sutta for many years, yet there are many areas I do not quite understand. Please enlighten me. The patriarch responded, I am illiterate. Please read out the characters to me and perhaps I will be able to explain the meaning. The nun said, You cannot even recognize the characters? How are you able then to understand the meaning? The Zen patriarch said, Truth has nothing to do with words. Truth can be likened to the bright moon in the sky. Words, in this case, can be likened to a finger. The finger can point to the moon's location. However, the finger is not the moon. To look at the moon, it is necessary to gaze beyond the finger, right? So that's what we're doing here. Um, I like to think of it as... um, Actually, one of my wonderful colleagues, Michael Yellowbird a um, social work professor at the University of North Dakota, Um, he actually coined the term neuro-decolonization. That's what mindfulness does, neuro-decolonization. And uh, you could think of that's what we're doing. We are, one way I like to think about mindfulness is that it is both a purification practice and a cultivation practice. We're cultivating positive mental states 
and we are purifying of um, unwholesome mental states in order to uh, really kick in the path of um, the path of awakening. It's a very lawful process what we're doing here. You know, the ego has absolutely no control over it. In fact, the ego um, interferes with the unfolding. So uh, as much as we can, we try to create the conditions for the unfolding to happen, and then it happens by itself. It happens by itself. Neurodecolonization. So you can uh, think of uh, uh, working with the hindrances as purification or really uh, seeing um, mental habit patterns in this, these heart minds. Habit patterns that to us seem like they're always there maybe, but are actually mental objects. You know, one way we can think about them in conceptual terms is as mental objects. You know, you might know from some familiarity with the um, Abhidhamma, the Buddhist psychology, that supposedly there's only uh, 52 objects that can be at the, in the mind-heart at any time. There's only 52 things. So um, it's, our, it's our job to see as clearly as we can what those things are floating uh, in our mind-heart across our awareness and to know them as well as we can, to know the parameters of them um, so we can decide whether we should keep them and, and water the seeds of that or whether we should use our mindfulness to decondition it. Just seeing clearly with our mindfulness and seeing the nature of these objects as wholesome or unwholesome, you know, that's all we need to do. We don't need to do anything else but see them clearly and see whether they will lead to others and our own happiness or whether it will lead to suffering. And wisdom uproots it. Wisdom uproots it. That's what we're trying to do. We're building our wisdom factor with our mindfulness. A little bit more theory. I love theory, but... uh, So there's uh, the Buddha taught, and I think around the Four Noble Truths, they said that there's three ways to know them. There's three, three ways to know the Dhamma. The first is theoretically. You know, we know in order for a person to become awakened that one of the requisites of that is the voice of another. And we're so lucky that, you know, we have what the Buddha taught as the voice of another and our wonderful teachers here. These people rock. They're laughing. And um, so we know theoretically someone tells us it is like this. And then we learn the knowledge of how to practice for this understanding, how we practice for it. And I think that's what I'm going to talk about tonight, how to practice with the hindrances to really know them. And then what happens after that is you get a realization or wisdom arises so you see clearly uh, beyond even any concepts we have of it, you know, as the Zen patriarch talked about. We see the moon without the conceptual overlay. 
So I'm going to say these things and hopefully it might be some small use in the practice, but the, the insight, the, um, the wisdom is what will uproot the defilements experienced as hindrances. So some other question is, why do they call them hindrances? What, is it, what are the hindrances for? Um, I was actually looking for the reference. Uh, I know I read this somewhere. I don't know if it's uh, canonical or just an interesting analogy, but that the hindrances, one way to think about them, it's like you want to go on a nice swim. You want to actually swim out to the ocean. And you start swimming out to the ocean, but first you have to get... And the ocean maybe is awakening, the path to awakening. The deeper into the ocean you go, uh, that is awakening, you're moving towards awakening. But first you have to get back past the breakers. And the hindrances are like the breakers. You know, you're swimming and you're swimming. And the breakers will maybe throw you back and then you'll have to swim some more and some more. And they'll throw you back. But once you, you know, get past the breakers uh, and you're starting to reach the um, quiet part of the ocean, what you start seeing in your mind heart and what I know absolutely, I'm pretty sure, I shouldn't say that right, I'm pretty sure and I'm hoping that you will see, is you will see the seven factors of awakening will start showing up. And it's really important to know that that's what's in your mind. It's important... Um, you know, uh, it's important, and, and also with the, um, with the um, hindrances to keep them within the frame of mindfulness. And it's possible to do that. Sometimes we struggle to do that, and, you know, we have to surrender to what's going on with us. But, so I'm going to talk about each of the, um, each of the hindrances. But first I want to... Um, I want to read a poem by our Rumi. It's called The Guest House. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they are a crowd of sorrows, who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. They may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Rumi. I guess one other thing I wanted to say about what, um, what the hindrances are hindering, what is underneath the hindrances, there's this great teacher that has this uh, wonderful talk about Shabkar. 
about this Tibetan teacher Chabkar and what he, what Chabkar writes about, about the nature of the mind. What is the nature of the mind unclouded by uh, defilements or hindrances? And one, uh, I'm sure there's other ways to say this, right? These are all fingers, but Shapkar has this beautiful description that the mind is intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, and ceaselessly responsive. Intrinsically empty refers to an understanding of selflessness. There might be another brilliant teacher on the stage who just wrote a book on emptiness. (laughs) That we are all waiting to come out. So emptiness, it's uh, understanding the um, inherently empty nature of of existence. It's, you know, it's one of those things that you, I, I can say it theoretically and how to practice with it. I think that book that's coming out is probably how to practice with it. It's such a wonderful gift. One way I talk about it when I teach about it is that if you believe in God or if there was a God, God does not have a three-by-five card in heaven that says this is what it means to be you. That all of those ways that you manifest in the world are the subject, are coming together and dissolving because of causes and conditions. And your karma or your habit patterns and their interaction with the world in a moment. And it's changing all the time. The second characteristic of our mind that is unhindered, awareness that is unhindered, is that it's naturally radiant. It just knows things. And it's possible to actually uh, when, you know, when we have some peace in our mind, I love the instruction to rest in awareness. Rest in spacious awareness. And, you know, make the knowing, radiant quality of awareness the object to look at. Or to just rest there. And then finally, an unhindered awareness, one-third characteristic that it's said to have is that it's ceaselessly responsive without a lot of hindrances and defilements when it's filled with or empty or has really positive, beautiful qualities in it. It always knows how to respond to whatever is happening in the moment. It always knows the wisest and most compassionate response. How cool would that be? So that's why we do this practice of decolonizing. We are decolonizing all of these uh, habit patterns that have been passed to us through history, through our social location, through so many. And you know, they are just greed, hatred, and delusion at the, at the highest levels, that multiple multiple analytic points in our existence. And there are hindrances because they're hindering our progress on the path right now. So let's decolonize. 
So the first approach to the hindrances, as I talked a bit about this morning, is to really investigate them. If we can, if we can bring mindful investigation to what's happening in this moment, if we can keep it in this moment. Oftentimes, hindrances, what they do is they carry us away, right? They carry us away and we get involved with whatever the topic or the subject of the hindrance is. Rather than, um, you know, one analogy would be on the um, side of the train track and just watching the trains come and go out of the station and you wake up, you know, five days into a retreat and you realize you've been on a train to Albuquerque, New Mexico over the last three days. (laughs) And, uh, you know, the hindrance has taken you away from your... Um, motivation or from your um, intention for the time that you spent in your practice. So um, the first thing is just to uh, bring some mindful awareness to it and we can remember to do that one way that we can sharpen what the dimensions of that are is just to remember RAIN. I think uh, the acronym RAIN, I think, was first developed by Michelle McDonald and used very well by Tara Brock, uh, you know, a brilliant mindfulness teacher and psychologist. And RAIN stands for recognize, just to remember, oh, okay, mindfulness, that's what I'm supposed to be doing, mindfulness. What is happening right now? What is this moment experience? What is happening? Uh, to accept it, to really surrender to what is happening in the moment. And that can be difficult sometimes. Sometimes we don't even realize we're not accepting something. Acceptance is a, um, I think it's a sacred, a sacred intention. And then once we accept it, we bring our mindful investigation to it. We're curious, what is this like? And I love, uh, this is a little um, write-up by Gil Fransdahl, who really has a nice way of putting things. He says we can look at it physically. How does it feel in the body? Is it pleasant or unpleasant? I love the investigation of Vedana, you know, feeling tone. Because if nothing else, I can always tell whether something feels good, bad, or doesn't feel either. That's one that's usually accessible to me. So what does this feel like? Does it change? Or how does it change? How does this feel emotionally? Is this charged? Is there um, pushing away? Is there pulling? Is there an emotion uh, embedded in here? How does it feel energetically? Is there rushing involved? Is there sinking or lifting? And then cognitively, I like this one. I like to ask myself one, this one. What narrative does this give rise to? What's the story? What is the personal narrative here? I think it's, you know, at some point it's, Excellent for us to, of course, let go of that, to let go of the personal narrative and bring it, bring it to bear when it's useful, but absolutely not to be driven by it, to be um, 
imprisoned by it. And then motivationally, I love this one. What this, uh, whatever is happening in this moment, what does it motivate me to do? Does it motivate me to go get a cup of tea and chill out? To go sit on the cushion and investigate more? I think that's a good question. And then non-identification, nature. One way that I love to do this is whenever I'm having a strong or whenever something is I'm struggling with, one thing I love to bring to mind is the exquisite club that I belong to of having that at the moment. You know, I'm fairly recently engaged and uh, my fiancé caught cancer. He's fine now, he's fine now. But when he first got it, you know, when I found out about it, you know, I'm sure many of you know this experience, it's a huge shock, it's like, But the first thing that came to my mind was, wow, you know, I'm in the public health field, so I know, you know, cancer's like the second leading cause of death for many people, I think, across the world. So the first thing that came to mind for me was, wow, I just joined an exquisite club. I am one of those people who have this as part of my personal lived experience. And we could think about that of everything that arises in us. All of that, we are part of exquisite clubs of, you know, the rest of the sentient beings on the planet who are experiencing that at this moment. It could be a place of great common humanity for us. So that's one way I like to work with non-identification. This is not personal. So that's the first thing that we bring to the hindrances is we, if we can, if we can, we bring a mindful exploration to, to the hindrances as they arise. But then if that's not working, and you know, at that point, we might not see it as a hindrance. We might just know that we're struggling on the cushion. Like we're struggling, it's hard to stay present with this moment experience. We're having some struggle of staying here. And uh, so um, if investigation isn't necessarily allowing us to uh, settle down, and settle down doesn't necessarily, I I don't mean by that, that it's all of a sudden feeling good and we're blissing out. That's not what I mean by settling down. It's just that we're able to stay present with what's happening in this moment and not getting carried away with um, a lot of story or just having to leave. So there are some counterbalances or remedies for the hindrances and I'd like to go through some of them. So um, I've read recently that the first two hindrances actually, some people think that they are kind of like a, uh, they're the main foundation for all the hindrances. And by that I mean desire or greed and aversion and ill will. That if you really looked, all the rest of the hindrances could be found within that. I'm not exactly sure, but that's what they said. And one thing, uh, one way to uh, investigate the hindrances to realize that it actually gets manifested 
not just in, you know, desire for a particular thing or greed in the mind. It can really show up at a lot of, for a lot of, uh, a lot of different ways. For me on uh, retreat, particularly when I have neutral feeling tone, neutral feeling tone, oh my gosh, I start creating movies in my mind, you know, about the person sitting next to me or about whether I am on the path or not on the path or where I am on the path. All these um, identities and conceits come up just as ways to, I think it's probably a form of entertainment, it seems like to me. So, the first hindrance, desire or greed, um, it's often experienced as lust, as sexual energy. And um, there's a very classic, there's a very classic Uh, remedy for um, experiencing sexual energy. And that is, of course, is just to think about those unattractive parts of of, uh, the object of your lust, such as urine, saliva, pus, feces, phlegm, sweat, body hair, teeth or lack of them. Hey, I say that as someone who just had like nine dental implants, so I can relate. Bone marrow, kidneys, organs, heart, liver, spleen, intestines, undigested food, (laughs) blood and fat. There's, you know, um, it's so interesting. My experience is that um, you know, there's certain things that I keep within the frame of mindfulness and other things that for some reason just don't seem to be within the frame of mindfulness and uh, VVs and VRs can be some of those things. And those, those many of you probably know that those are Vipassana romances and Vipassana vendettas. You know, that's probably one manifestation of the first two hindrances. I'm in love with this person. You know, we know really nothing about the person, but we know that we are in love with them. And, you know, it could be that there's something underneath that. Actually, our uh, dear teacher, Jack Cornfield talks about being a monk and just having so much lust and realizing it was actually loneliness underneath. It was just loneliness there. And, um, you know, sometimes lust could be, or romantic fantasy, which is, you know, I go there a lot, romantic fantasy, wow. In fact, romantic fantasy is such one of my greed, desire um, hindrances that I had a short, a short uh, cut term for it. That's how you know what your mental habit patterns are, right? <laughs> because you develop little terms for them every time you see them. So mine was RF, romantic fantasy. Oh, there's RF again, RF, RF, RF. And, um, and it could be, you know, that could be driven by just a pretty wholesome desire to want to be a wholesome householder, to have a family, or to be in community more directly. And that's wholesome, but sometimes it can, uh, it can turn into something that can be obstructive to what we're trying to accomplish here. And seeing underneath that could be a, a great thing. 
great thing to do. Another suggestion for a remedy for um, greed or uh, desire or lust is to imagine what would happen if you actually got what you were lusting after. <laughs> I mean, you can carry that, you know, down the, the, you could carry this story to its inevitable end because we absolutely know that everything that has the, um, everything that has the nature to arise has the nature to, to leave. That's just the nature of things. And whatever you would get is going to go. So to maybe reflect on that. Or reflect on other harmful consequences of getting what you want. Maybe you just want to eat potato chips until you fall over. I've done that with M&Ms on retreat. And what happened is I didn't feel good and, you know, I had to check my, high, my blood pressure. <laughs> So you might reflect on what it would mean to actually get what you wanted. And then also think, uh, it might be something that you've gotten in the past, has it ever been enough? I love that one. Has it ever been enough? Some other um, remedies to greed or lust in the mind or to narrow your focus uh, to, inc- you know, to try to work on um, gathering the um, energy or increasing the so-called concentration or samadhi. I'm, I'm a, I like to count breaths. If I'm just really out there all over, I'm happy to count breaths. I usually will count uh, breaths up to six or ten and then back down to one, but it can really help steady me. So to narrow your focus and to try to develop some more samadhi or to broaden your focus, listen to sounds or experience the body more globally. Change your focus. Actually, these are the remedies for aversion. (laughs) They're probably good for greed and desire as well, but... Let's talk a little bit of, about aversion and ill will. That shows up a lot of different uh, ways that you don't see. And you know, I think that uh, desire and greed and uh, aversion and ill will, they are um, uh, mind, heart, habit patterns that we have out in the world. But they're particularly, you know, we call them hindrances because they're showing up right here with us right now. And one big thing that I think is so important is that a lot of our mental habit patterns, we can't put a mindfulness frame around them. One way I like to talk about this, and this is my experience. Okay, so I had a, one really big uh, aversion that I had was actually self-pity. I had a lot of self-pity because of historic and familial reasons and there's, you know, there may be some genetics in there. But for, you know, many decades of my life, I, I walked around with a veil of self-pity that was, you know, sometimes it absolutely wasn't there, but when it was there, I couldn't see it as that. And rather than 
be able to see the edges of it or to see it in a frame, it was like it was, uh, it colored my whole perceptual field. It was like some kind of dye in the water that I was swimming in. I couldn't see the edges of it. So I would walk around and, you know, it would be something in the external world or something that I thought or saw or felt emotionally that would be the... um, trigger for self-pity to arise and then it would filter my perception and how I saw the world but I never really saw that self-pity it was so normal to me it was nothing different it was just one of the ways that Bonnie showed up right it was part of Bonnie and um, uh, actually was on retreat here uh, so I'll tell you the story, and I, I hope I'm not saying it bad about this teacher. I'm so happy the teacher did this. It was around, uh, it was this retreat, it was around Columbus Day. Probably know where I'm going with this. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm uh, Opelousas and Kushada, a mixed-race person, and I hang out in Indian country. And this person told this, you know, what she thought, and I'm sure with the best intentions, she thought she was going to tell this beautiful story about how we were, an, you know, we were actually, uh, what we're doing is, is uh, analogy would be what C- Christopher Columbus was doing, is exploring the unknown territory. That's an example of universalizing our subjectivity. You know, probably that was useful for 80 percent of the people in here for me actually it was really useful for me actually I shouldn't say that it was very useful for me because it triggered a panic attack and I was thinking oh my god Christopher Columbus is outside (laughs) that can happen sometimes you know we are actually this is wonderful part of our purification remember we're purifying and cultivating part of the purification is that we do have these you know, these um, traumas and memories and ideas that are embedded in our tissue that do need to come out. So, you know, I was able to stay present with it, but I had a panic attack, like, oh my gosh, I am in incredible harm right now. I am in danger right now. I'm in incredible danger. And through the panic attack, and I was able to hold it in mindfulness, like, wow, danger, danger, I'm in danger. And then I realized that I had uh, this big, huge self-pity. I mean, I finally was able to get a mindfulness frame around it. I saw the edges of what that mind state were, probably because it was really, really strong, maybe. Within that panic, there was a lot of fear and fear for my safety and, you know, kind of some self-pity, like, I have no agency here. I have... I am a victim. It was a victim identity. That's what it is. It's a victim identity. I'm sure none of you have any victim identities, but that's a good one, really seeing how victim identities work. It's really great. And so uh, through that experience, I was finally able to get the the borders around it with my mindfulness, with good satisampajanya. I got the borders around it. I said, oh, that's self-pity. And because I was able to see it, what happens when you're able to see those things, those habitual uh, patterns, you know, of unwholesome expression of our histories, um, we're able to decide whether it's wholesome or unwholesome, and we can decide whether to uproot it, to purify, or to, uh, you know, we decide what we really want to be about. 
So after that, you know, in the very beginning, it was like whenever I saw self-pity arise, I could see it. I could actually see it moving into my awareness. And I'd say, ah, there you are, Mara. You know, it was a great example of being able to finally see it. And, you know, I still get it, but... Um, a lot weaker, and a lot of times I can see it coming. And it's it's interesting once you have seen it and you know extracted the wisdom out of it. How it's just probably a traumatic response that wasn't well handled in the moment because of you know reasons probably beyond my control. And that's the other thing about it was that the correct response to seeing any things or the wise response is actually compassion, right? That's what we want to bring when we see these things in, in us. That's what we're shooting for. And when it's not compassion, when we see the aversion, you know, when we see these habit patterns over and over again, and every time we see them, I, I remember absolutely flinching. I still flinch at some things that I see in my heart mind. It's like, ooh, right? That, that is uh, aversion responding to whatever the hindrance was right before that and aversion just becomes the next thing to hold with your mindfulness it's the next thing for us to see it's part of the the process so seeing the self-pity over and over again i really was able to decondition a lot of it and i actually saw it in my mother my mother who is you know 30 years older than me 30 plus and I was, and actually we started deconditioning it in her. My 84-year-old mother, when she would get all self-pity, I'd say, oh, there's your self-pity. And after a couple months, it actually reduced in her, an 84-year-old person who wasn't necessarily practicing mindfulness, but just to see, to point something out in a, in a funny and loving way. It was really amazing. So I love mindfulness. It is so useful. So um, that's an example uh, of aversion. And aversion and ill will can show up in a lot of different ways. I'm going to give a talk, I think, about measuring, measuring ourselves against others. You know, uh, it's called conceit in the Buddha suttas. Better than, worse than, and equal to. But measurement, and it can o- and often produce a lot of ill will. You know, I don't like that person, or I'm always watching out. Does that person get more attention than me? Do people like that person more? What's going on with that? I've got a couple people in my life that I flinch when I see that rise. And then do a little self-compassion. But aversion and ill will, another one of the important hindrances. And what is a, um, again, we want to bring mindfulness to it, reign, recognize it, accept it, investigate it. You know, uh, how does this aversion and ill will, will feel emotionally, energetically? What does it motivate me to do? Put the bat down, Bonnie. You know, just relax for a minute. And um, so if, if it continues a lot with, um, if it continues a lot uh, and investigation doesn't necessarily help you work through it, 
Other um, remedies to aversion and ill will can be narrowing your focus, increasing your concentration. That's probably true of all the hindrances, is just trying to um, increase your concentration or sharpen your mindfulness so when you bring it back to that, you can see it more clearly and maybe can go through rain and investigate it a little bit uh, and bring a little bit more awareness to what's happening. You can change your focus. Uh, Actually, um, the suttas say that you can always replace unwholesome mind states with wholesome ones. And if you're feeling ill will, particularly around a person, you can try sending that person metta. They say that the cause of metta or friendliness to arise is to see goodness in another. You might go through the list of what this person is really like and see if there might be some good, uh, some good qualities that you can see in that person that might allow you to have them be the focus of some, um, some loving kindness and metta practice. Another is to, um, aversion and ill will, is to notice the difference between, um, and this is particularly working with pain in the body, pain in the body, to notice the difference between the sensations of pain, and pain, remember, that's a conceptual overlay. It could be stinging and throbbing and heaviness and pinching, you know, to get a little bit more direct about it. And then notice the difference between that and your aversion to that is the one way to look at more uh, deeply. Another remedy to aversion and ill will is to reflect on your own good deeds. I mean, gosh, everyone here for either six months or three, six weeks or three months. Did I say six months? Yeah. That's what we all wish, right? Um, Sometimes we wish that, I know. Other times we wish that it would, we were out the door, but sometimes we wish it was six months because it always is changing, right? Um, we can reflect on our good qualities and I feel like touching, you know, that whole um, gesture of touching your feet to my forehead because you all absolutely have some really good karma or you wouldn't be here for one and uh, it's an incredibly wholesome thing to come here to just even reflect on that might be able to um, be the opposite of aversion and ill will, particularly if it's aversion or ill will towards yourself. Just reflect on the good qualities that it took to get you here. Fear. So being in the body is a good place to work with fear because there is a lot of body manifestations of it and just to see how it's changing is really excellent. Like my fear of giving this talk. Rather than, uh, actually, (laughs) the teachers have a wonderful um, way of lowering the bar of how good this talk has to be. So that's really good. The bar is that um, only one person out of all of you can all fall asleep and you can all not get it, but only one person can run out of here with their face just in a jumble. Otherwise, it was a successful talk. (laughs) So you can lower the bar.
That's the wisdom of people who've been doing this a long time. (laughs) Sloth and torpor. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to be tranquil and alert, right? Tranquil and alert are two words that we really are going for. And sometimes we get tranquil but not the alert part. (laughs) I really liked uh, these remedies for uh, tranquility without the alertness. Sometimes it's that we really lack direction is that maybe we have forgotten what we're trying to do here. That we're trying to bring some mindfulness to all of the experiences. There is no experience we can have that is outside of our mindfulness. That's the medicine. Think of mindfulness as like the deepest, best medicine that has ever been created. And we always want to have access to that. It will not only help us um, let go of all of our habit patterns that are the cause of our own suffering and others. It's, it will lead us along the path to our awakening, to our contentment, to our... You know, I, I really want to say that too, is that one of the foundations of this practice related to um, sloth and torpor or related to any of the hindrances is that we're not looking outside of ourselves for any sense of happiness or freedom or contentment. You know, there could be things outside of us that bring, you know, that are the source of pleasure, and that's wonderful. There's nothing inherently unwholesome about that. But uh, things outside of us cannot be the source of our of our uh, well-being and our ease, or otherwise, I think we all know we're screwed if the world has to look a certain way for us to have well-being. We're pretty much screwed. So that's, you know, why we do this. And around the tranquility and alertness, I love this um, remedy is to, uh, you know, one of the diagnoses is that maybe we lack direction. We forget why we're do- what we're doing here. You know, what am I doing here again? Um, So we lack direction. And by this, we might want to recommit to just the medicine of this practice, to the healing, the well-being that we've come for. It could be lack of stimulation. I love this one, lack of stimulation. So it could be that we're not looking closely enough at something. I think sloth and torpor... I think are also associated with neutral Vedana. Neutral Vedana is an interesting thing to look at, really. Lack of stimulation. So you might look more closely at the nature of your experience in that moment. You might count breaths to to up the samadhi a little bit. You you might remember the urgency of change or bring up some, um, what's that term? Samvega. Yes, Samvega. Some, wow, man, I got to get this done. And, uh, you know, that sense of urgency doesn't come out of the ego. It actually is a natural part of the unfolding, unfolding of the process to awakening. It's part of the progress of insight, is that we, our real desire to get this done, to be finished with this suffering.
So we look at that. Maybe we have experienced that. Maybe we can call that up. We notice the resistance. We notice the complacency, the lack of us even wanting to try to do something, something differently. That's sloth and torpor. Restlessness and worry, I think, manifests as many different ways. Um, I think uh, worry, we all worry a lot. If we're planning a lot, we're thinking about the future a lot, um, we can, you know, let that become, take us away from our present moment experience and what we're trying to do. And if, you know, worry, I think, is a mental habit pattern for all of us. And it's not that we don't, you know, that those of us who worry might think, well, that's a really positive quality. I'm the go-to person to get stuff done. You know, I know how to get stuff done. And you can actually have that wonderful quality of virya of energy without the worry aspect of it. And then maybe people wouldn't think that you were overbearing and bossy when you're doing it. <laughs> I'm speaking about myself right now, you know. So, um, so worry, I would say that if there's a lot of planning going on, if there's a lot of future thinking, you might want to look at the role of worry in your, the habits that you carry with you throughout your life. I wanted to uh, actually talk about two Jataka tales that have been really impactful for me in the hindrances. There's one Jataka tale that really impacts me, particularly as a person of color who does a lot of social justice work. And I think about um, the, um, just the injustices that have been done historically and to this day. Don't get me started, right? <laughs> But I want to uh, uh, read this Jataka tale. It's a story about when uh, the Buddha, when he, one of his previous lives, he actually, his manifestation in life was at a buffalo. So once upon a time, the Bodhisattva, the Buddha-to-be, was born as a great and strong buffalo who roamed the Himalayas. One day, day as he stood under a, a pleasant tree eating, an impertinent monkey jumped onto his back and voided excrement all over the buffalo, then swung from his horns and kept on harassing the buffalo each time he returned to, and every time he returned to this tree, the the monkey would say, there's that buffalo. And he would go on his head and he would pee on him and, and, you know, crap on him and hit him on the head. Finally, you know, and this happened for a while, and finally a tree sprite, one of the little tree spirits, that belonged to the tree, said to the buffalo, why do you patiently endure, endure each freak this mischievous and selfish ape may wreck? You know, why don't you just crush underfoot this monkey? Why don't you just turn to that monkey and go wham and just, you know, put an end to your trouble? You know, even the children here are showing scorn to you because you're just so patient and enduring. And the Bodhisattva said, if tree sprite, I cannot endure this monkey's ill treatment without abusing him. How can my wish to become enlightened Buddha ever be fulfilled? But the monkey will do the same to another buffalo thinking that it's me. And when this happens, that other buffalo will destroy him. <laughs> and I will be... I will be delivered both from the pain and from the karma of having done it. <laughs> That's something to think about. I mean, 
I deeply believe in karma. I don't know why I do, but I know karma is true. It is absolutely true. And that's a question. Do I need to be do I need to be the agent of that person's karma? And what is it, you know, what does it mean for me if I am the agent of that person's karma? I think it's something for me to think about. That actually is the source of a lot of restraint in my life. Boy, I'm out of time. I have so much more to say. So there's another little story. I love it. I'm going to tell it to another little tale. It's actually a, it's a sutta that I thought I printed, but I didn't think I did, but I'll tell you it. It's the um, sutta about the two acrobats. I'm sure many of you know it. I love the sutta. It's a uh, senior acrobat who has an apprentice, a young girl who's the apprentice, and the acrobat says to the young girl, come in uh, there, and they're walking across a wire, just a, a wire in, uh, you know, in practicing their performance. And uh, the, um, the uh, master says, come sit on my shoulders, and as we are walking across this wire, I will watch out for you, I will take care of you, and you will watch out for me, you will take care of me, and uh, we will get to the end of the rope, and we will finish the performance, and we'll get paid, and we'll be happy. And this young girl, uh, you know, she thinks about it for a minute while they're on the wire, and she said, no, Master, no, that's not the way it should be. As we are walking across here, as I sit on your shoulders, as we cross this dangerous a wire, I will look after myself. And in looking after myself, I look after you. And you look after yourself. And you looking after yourself, you will look after me. And then we will both get to the end of this wire. We will give a good performance and we'll get paid and we'll be happy. And I love that. You know, we all, I mean, part of our uh, burnout and part of our hindrances, I think for me, I mean, I don't know if any of you feel like you need to take care of everybody all the time. And it's like, you know, the one thing that we can give is some self-sufficiency to people as well. I guess that was one was particularly close to me. I don't know if it resonates with anyone else. And I'd like to um, end with one more poem about one way for us to open to all of our hindrances, all of the things that we are purifying. And, you know, it could be that we just have some stuck stuff and we just need to, you know, as Carol Wilson so beautifully taught me, do stomping meditation for a day or something or do crying meditation, but do it with mindfulness and do it with some compassion. Like, yeah, this needs to come out. And uh, maybe it's we're seeing a habit pattern that we can work with with our mindfulness and see the edges of it and decondition it. But this is one way to think about opening to all of it. It's called humility as nothing to defend. I can find truth in anything anyone ever says about me. So no, no one can be my enemy. Call me a fraud, I can find it. Call me a liar, I can find it. Call me a failure, I can find it. Call me unreasonable, irresponsible, ignorant, deluded, full of ego, totally unenlightened, 
the worst being in the world, I can find it all. As consciousness, I can find anything. Like you, I have nothing to hide, nothing to lose, and no image to protect. Every possible facet of human experience is available here. This is truly the end of war. It is the end of protecting and defending a mirage called me. So next time you get triggered by something someone says to you or about you, ask yourself this, what am I defending? This inquiry is the key to an unimaginable peace. Deep gratitude to anyone who has ever given me any kind of feedback. Let's sit for a moment. May the positive energies of our practice be dedicated to the happiness and awakening of all beings in all directions. Special merit to our family members on the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation as they fight for environmental justice, as they put it, for all beings who are at least 60% water or beyond. That is who they're prayers and struggle are including. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.